Hi, I'm Chris Neeland, host of the new podcast, Cult Brand Secrets, brought to you by The Gathering and Evergreen Podcasts. The Gathering is a Forbes top-rated business summit and a masterclass for brand and business leaders hoping to reap the benefits of cult-like adoration. Every year, The Gathering brings together disruptors from around the globe to learn from and to celebrate the leaders behind some of the most iconic brands in the world, like Marvel, Skittles, Beats by Dre, Yeti, and the Dallas Cowboys. For the first time ever, this podcast will give you access to some of the exclusive business leader learnings from the gathering's past events. I don't think that it's an exaggeration to refer to Laura Nestler as the queen of community marketing. She is such an expert, and not just in the theories, but in the practical application of community marketing. She really cut her teeth, if you will, in the space doing events and doing event marketing for the Seattle Mariners. Uh, She then went on to Adidas, and then she was at Yelp for many years, helping to make them a global superpower, and now she's at Duolingo. You know, Laura has mastered how to motivate and how to enable small groups of people, people who share these unique values or interests, and they want to form these mutually beneficial communities, uh, not just to really help themselves, but obviously it helps the brands that they love. Creating community is foundational to how so many cult brands really dial up their relevance. And as Laura will recommend to you here during her 2020 gathering speech, you would be very wise to double down on community marketing. It is so much more than just a buzzword. It is so much more than just some vogue social media strategy that's having a moment. This is a core business strategy that will drive demonstrable growth for your organization. Now, how can I say that? Well, if you don't know, Duolingo is this language-based app that is accessible without charge uh, in the App Store. As of early February of 2021, they offered over 106 different courses for 38 different languages. The app has over 300 million registered users all over the world. It's the most downloaded educational app that's ever been in the app store it's the highest grossing educational app that's ever been offered in the app store and it's a freemium model meaning that you can get it for free and people will eventually pay for added perks and benefits i think what's really most interesting is that the majority of duolingo's content is created by volunteers not even employees who are on the payroll Uh, In that way, it's more like Wikipedia or like Reddit, where all the content is crowdsourced, and that's where the great value comes from. So if you are keen to learn how to better mobilize your fan base so that you can reap, you know, rewards that are not only tied to transactions, but also interactions, then uh, I suggest you grab a pen and a piece of paper and take some notes because Laura's going to break it down for you. The version around it have changed, right? It's been growth and development and engagement and marketing and expansion. But the one thing that stayed the same is the vagueness, that blank stare that I get when I tell people that I work in community and it's clear that they have no idea what I do. Case in point, in 2007, I'd reached the dating milestone with my boyfriend of being included in his family's annual Christmas letter because this is a thing. And it said, you know, we received it. It said, Jonathan's doing well in whatever ways he was. 
Girlfriend Laura is continuing to find success as the head of marketing for the internet. <laughs> you are all welcome, by the way. You are all welcome. But in my 15 years, community has never been more front and center than it is today. And I think you'd agree. Everywhere that you click, this word is being used to galvanize, to win hearts and minds, to bring people a sense of belonging, to make people feel like they've found their people, to say, yes, we are the product or the service or the brand or the whatever for you. Because look, we share your very niche set of interests. And why is this rallying cry so popular right now? It's because in a search for authenticity, consumers are seeking micro-communities or small groups of people that share a very niche set of traits or interests or ethos. The consumer relationship with large social platforms is evolving. And if they aren't moving off of the platform completely, they are doing everything they can to limit the noise and the distraction of the main social feed in favor of these very small niche communities of people that have very high independent engagement. Let me say this another way. Your customers, your clients, your brand advocates are seeking authenticity. They want to laser in on the activities that they care about the most. So what should you do? You should probably double down. That's what Airbnb is doing. Their CEO, Brian Chesky, has been very, very open about how uh, like a refound commitment to community. And he's even changed his title from CEO to CEO and head of community. And never to be outdone, Facebook has recently changed their mission statement from make the world more open and connected to give people the power to build community and bring people closer together. And while all of this tracks, and it helps explain why this word is so ubiquitous, it doesn't do much on my talk's promise, which is to demystify that community is not just a fuzzy buzzword. Because community is all about feelings, right? And feelings can't be quantified, right? My experience tells a different story. So what I'm here to tell you about today are four lessons on how to cultivate a community that will deliver business impact. And then I'll give you four questions that you can ask yourself and take back to your organization to action. So before I was Laura at Duolingo, I was Laura at Yelp. What I really did at Yelp was help craft the original community growth playbook and then expand it city by city, market by market, country by country for almost 10 years. What we learned at Yelp is that we could win if we spent all of our energy on a very small group of fanatic reviewers. We thought about this like a bullseye. We paid very little attention to people on the outside rings, people reading reviews, people subscribed to our newsletter, people engaging with our brand on social. And we spent all of our attention on the people in the very center, the people that were creating value for us by writing reviews. Community professionals will know this as the 1990, or the idea that a very small percent of users will contribute content that is then consumed by the masses. Now, this is interesting because it's the exact reverse of the traditional marketing funnel, right? One where you're trying to address a total addressable market. But the only way this community model works is if you deploy the right motivations to the people at the very top. To evoke Dan Pink, these are generally a blend of extrinsic motivators, carrots, sticks, leaderboards, swag, and intrinsic motivators like autonomy and mastery and purpose. You probably didn't notice this when you use Yelp, unless any of you are in the elite squad. 
But the entire site is structured to motivate people through praise and attention and bragging rights of the reviews that they write. All that we did at Yelp was advocate people to continue writing more. So was this strategy based in feelings? Yes, it was. Did this strategy lead to quantifiable business results? This elite squad numbers in the tens, maybe hundreds of thousands. It powers a site that is used by hundreds of millions every single month. There's nothing fuzzy about that. Let me give you another example. I summoned Dan Pink earlier, and in his TED Talk on the puzzle of motivation, he proposes this question. Let's say it's the year 2000, and you want to create an online encyclopedia that will be adopted by the masses, right? You can go with Model A or Model B. Model A is a model where you have significant funding from one of the world's largest tech companies. You hire experts in their field to curate articles. They're getting peer-reviewed. They're getting sold. They're getting marketed. Right, this is a big deal. Model B, let's just open up some sort of open collaboration project on the internet. Let's just invite people, anyone, to contribute. We won't vet them. We won't ask them their qualifications. We'll just trust that the system will self-regulate itself. We're not going to pay anybody. We're not going to market it. And we're just going to hope that it takes off, right? Dan Pink says there's not a single sober economist anywhere in the world that would have bet on Model B. And yet this is exactly how Wikipedia beat Encarta. A micro-community of 200,000 highly engaged people created 48 million pages of content that is now consumed by 500 million unique people every single month. Not fuzzy. The reason you're hearing the word community everywhere right now is because executives at the highest level understand that community strategies drive growth. They're not changing their mission statements. They're not changing their titles on a fuzzy buzzword. Yet, many, many times people talk to me and they ask why they don't understand how community fits into their own business. They struggle to find its value, right? They're positioning it under a function where it's not able to contribute value, and then it's not resourced well because they don't understand. This is a mistake. In order for your brand's community to yield maximum benefit, it really needs to be structured at a high-level strategy impacting business-wide goals. Yelp did this. Wikipedia did this. Let me show you how we're doing this at Duolingo. Duolingo is the world's most popular way to learn a language. We have 300 million total users, and all of our language learning content is completely free, meaning it does not matter how much money you pay, you will get the same learning content as anybody else. To unpack how Duolingo's community work, first I need to tell you a little bit about our boss. There's a couple misconceptions about Duolingo, right? First is that even though we are completely free, we are the most downloaded education app ever in the App Store, and we're the highest grossing education app in the App Store. And the second thing that a lot of people don't know is that most of our content is created by highly qualified teams of volunteers who create our courses. So again, to unpack this, I really need to tell you about our boss, Luis Vanon. He was born and raised in Guatemala, where he saw firsthand how limited access to education really impacts people's ability to learn. Specifically, English education, I should say, perpetuates poverty. And the second thing you need to know about Luis is that, there's only one way to say it, he, he's a genius. He received the MacArthur Fellows Award, which is the genius grant for his work in human-based computation. And in English, this just means how computers 
and humans work together to solve complicated problems. So what he found is about 200 million people a day were submitting these CAPTCHAs, and they took about 10 seconds of human effort. And in V2, he thought, you know, I wonder if we use this 10 seconds of human effort to do something good for humanity. So he created reCAPTCHA, and now when you submit words, you're actually digitizing an out-of-print book. So let me explain this to you. There's many, many projects out there that want to preserve books, right? And so there's AI and robots and all the things that are coming to take our job that are actually digitizing the book. But it can only read a certain number of words. And the words that it can't read get served up into a CAPTCHA. And so now when hundreds of millions of people are typing in words, they are able to digitize books. I mean, it's genius, right? I think that one thing that really surprised me about this, and it shouldn't have because of my industry, is that a micro-community formed around reCAPTCHA. And people would get together online and hold these online reCAPTCHA parties. They would laugh about funny things that came up. They would share those. And they would just submit CAPTCHAs because they believed so deeply in the mission of digitizing out-of-print books, right? It seems silly, but CAPTCHA had all of the right ingredients to create an authentic community. So when Luis sold reCAPTCHA and started Duolingo, community in the form of crowdsourcing was in Duolingo's DNA. We started with four courses that were created by teams of in-house experts. And today we have 94 courses in 37 languages, and it does not take a genius to connect the dots to figure out how we got there. We opened up our tools to our community. We enabled them to create teams of their own and then contribute courses to Duolingo. Today, we have a relatively fleshed out community infrastructure, right? We have a great training program and a vetting process and a pretty swanky application form. Back then, we just had a clean landing page and an application. We hustled on the back end to grant access to our tools, which were far from user-friendly. We put teams of community managers on high-touch support, which was not scalable. We built only what we needed to test whether this would work, right? It was janky, it was ugly, it was pretty painful for everybody involved, and it worked. So my lesson number one for you is that people want to help you. You just need to let them. This is really scary. So today, what we've done is establish rigorous community structures and systems, right? We have a proof of concept, and so now we're able to create this community feedback loop because once we got this working, we needed to ensure quality at scale. So users can actually submit problems with the courses that then go directly back to the courses team who can immediately implement the changes, right? So their courses are continually improving and evolving. They are dynamic. These teams also have autonomy to add new lessons and new words and new phrases all the time. They can even, and they do, create a second course to A-B test against their first course to see if it will lead to better learning outcomes. Another thing that this community model allows us to do is grow in directions we wouldn't otherwise be able to. Our mission is to bring free education to the world, but as you can imagine, to do that, it makes sense to optimize for the largest and most spoken languages to touch the most people. But because of our community model, we're able to work with communities like the Navajo, Hawaiian, Welsh, Maori, Scottish, Gaelic, and they can create courses of their own while we simultaneously are working on expanding our mission. We could not invest these resources without our community model. Here is the president of Ireland honoring the Irish course team for their efforts in preserving the Irish language, which Truth has more learners on Duolingo than there are native speakers in the world.
So ask yourself this, what opportunities are you currently deprioritizing that your community could address? Where are you unwilling to relinquish control? I'm not saying it's not scary, but I am saying that your community is willing to help if you'll let them. Lesson two, you have to unlock the right motivations to mobilize people. A couple years back, we decided that we wanted to start testing offline language events. The concept is simple. Language learning is inherently social. People are probably learning a language to speak it with others. Why wouldn't we add that to our own learning ecosystem? We decided to do this with the same method that we'd done for course creation, right? Validate our concept, grow by repeatedly doing things that wouldn't scale, and then once we did have a proof of concept, create structure and systems to ensure quality. You can actually see this strategy play out through our numbers. This was our event growth in the first six months. We'd reached about 100 events a month. In year one, we'd started to operationalize and we understood what the system should look like to do this at scale. We were at about 500 events a month. At year two, we grew from 500 events a month to 500 events a week. And today, we consistently have 500 events a week. Last week, we had 613 across 113 countries, 820 cities, and 34 languages. I am of the firm belief that the best community executives out there understand that a large part of their job is to remind the organization of the actual people that their product and brand impacts every single day. So people see these numbers and they always want to know one thing. How did you do that? But I've already told you, you just need to hold your community program to the same set of rigorous standards as any other product in your business's suite. You need to validate, you need to cheaply prove your concept, and then you need to systematize. So here are some of the specific tactics I took. The first one is what I call the DIY phase, right? You're just out there trying to figure out what works. You need to do this all yourself. So I sent an email to 500 people in Seattle, which is where I live. And I said, hi, my name's Laura. I work for Duolingo. You're learning Spanish. I'm learning Spanish. Let's learn Spanish together. And it worked, people came. And then at that event, I met other people who wanted to hold events for other languages. The network effects took place pretty quickly. We were able to see that this was a need, but I still needed to go and understand all the pain points myself, or else I wouldn't be able to go and ask 2,000 volunteers to go and do it every single day. Phase two is test things that don't scale. This is the fail period of this process, right? You're considering this an experiment. You're just getting out there and validating ideas. I must have tried 30 different event types, different times, days, different venues, different types of leaders, different types of groups. Would it be an intercambio or should it be beginners or should it be advanced? Most of my ideas didn't work. And this is the phase where you need to be comfortable with that or else you will quit. The ones that did work worked really well. And that's phase three. You just build what you need to get your airplane in the air. You worry about your in-flight entertainment options later. They will probably change by the time you get up there, right? So you're only going to optimize for the next order of magnitude. At event number one, I thought, how am I going to get to event number 10? And at event 10, how am I going to get to event 100, right? I wasn't jumping two to three levels above where I already was. But here is the secret that you probably don't want to hear. The growth engine behind events is not savvy product marketing or savvy management or really intense gamified reward structures. It's intrinsically motivating humans who are seeking authentic micro-communities, AKA feelings, right? Because behind every single successful event is a volunteer host who is dedicating their time to our mission. 
You remember this graphic? Now you have a human to put with that one. So with a community model, the question you need to answer is not how are you going to you know, provide systems and products and tools for these people down here. The question is how are you going to tap into the intrinsic motivation that gets lay in Nigeria and Esquivel in Venezuela to hold events week after week. And I could go on a big nerd vortex right now because these are my gods, behavioral psychologists like Carol Dweck and BJ Fogg and Dan O'Reilly and Malcolm Gladwell, but I'm going to stick on the Dan Pink train because that's the train we are on. And what you need to take away is that to fuel community growth strategies, you need to unlock the right intrinsic motivations. Autonomy. This is the desire to direct your own life. The hosts are able to create events that make sense for them. Right? They can hold it at the time and the day and the language and the style that they want. We can provide them with tons of tools and resources, but we're not micromanaging what they're doing. Mastery, the desire to get better at something that matters. They not only are improving their own language skills, they're able to help others improve, and they're able to see that happen. And purpose, the desire to serve something bigger than ourselves. Event hosts are out operationalizing our mission, and they care about it deeply. They are the hands and the feet in bringing free education to the world, and that matters. But think back to our contributors, the ones creating the courses. They have the autonomy to create a course the way they want it, within boundaries, of course. They have the mastery to improve their course, even create a brand new course. And they have the purpose to save potentially indigenous and endangered languages that wouldn't have a home or a platform anywhere else. Autonomy, mastery, and purpose are at the core of intrinsic motivation. And intrinsic motivation is at the core of the community growth model. This is what you need to use as your framework. So ask yourself this, how are you currently rewarding your community? Are you throwing a bunch of extrinsic motivators their way and hoping that they become authentically engaged? Or are you unlocking the right intrinsic motivations? Lesson number three, think about the funniest inside joke that you share with your friends. It probably pokes fun at one of you. It probably is about not taking you guys too seriously. And it creates a bond between the two of you. It, in fact, it can create a bond between strangers. There may be some of you out here that know, as I do, that there's always money in the banana stand. Or you might be wondering if I'm wearing jean shorts under this jumpsuit. And I am. There are dozens of us. <laughs> and if that doesn't make sense to you, it's OK. It's not for you. right? If you can harness the power of an inside joke, you will create an immediate dialogue with your people and you can blur the line between brand and audience. So first of all, I should say, we are not above petty emotional manipulation. I guess it shouldn't have been a surprise when this fake showed up on Twitter. And I'll read it. It says, language bird is crying. Learn Italian today, or he will eat a poison loaf of bread. <laughs> the next email will be a funeral evite. <laughs> and then this came. It says, the duo bird, when I haven't been active, beg for your life in Spanish. <laughs> on one hand, we knew when these memes were coming in that they didn't represent our brand. But on the other hand, they were hilarious. And we love them internally just as much. And we wanted in. We joked about them ourselves. So we got to work on an April Fool's campaign. And on April Fool's Day, we dropped this. Here at Duolingo, we know that learning a language works best when you practice every day. That's why Duolingo sends helpful notifications to users to remind them to practice, practice, practice. But for some users, we found that's just not effective enough. 
That's why we're excited to launch a brand new premium feature, Duolingo Push. Since Duolingo can be used wherever you are, now Duolingo Push can remind you wherever you are. That's right, Duo himself will show up anytime you might be in danger of breaking your streak to give you a real life reminder that you can't ignore. This approach is risky, right? We are poking fun at ourselves. We are not taking ourselves too seriously. And it could have not worked. We talked a lot about this, about how, you know, are we not touching the widest possible market here? And yes, that was true. So where we landed on creating this was, how do we go deep enough with the way that we speak to our community that a specific audience will understand that it's just for them, but then be wide enough that we can see it quantifiably in our numbers. We saw a 70% increase in new users on iOS. We saw a 55% increase of users on Android. And this was all from a meme that was generated and perpetuated by our community that we weren't afraid to take ourselves too seriously to just jump in on. So ask yourself this, right? Where are you currently being too precious? Where are you worried that if you let something that might be a little embarrassing get out of control that it'll destroy your brand? Obviously, within reason, my advice is to lean in. Don't take yourself too seriously here. I do understand that there's a short-term sacrifice where you will be speaking to people that doesn't work for everyone, and this is scary, and you will get pushback from your internal people. But if you can keep it small and intimate and engaged, you will cultivate an authentic community and committed tribes for the long haul, right? You will find your people. And keep your eyes open, because these little winks and nods are everywhere. Did you know? that Subaru has been marketing to lesbians using subtle cues since the 90s? This blew my mind when I found out. They've had campaigns with titles like Get Out and Stay Out. These license plates, which I'm sure you can't read, are things like Xena Lover and P-Townie and Camp Out. And if you don't get those references, it's okay. They are not for you. That is the point. Final lesson today is to elevate your purpose. Michael Smith from Gatorade, I think, says it best. He says, brands that make an impact are brands that have found their soul. They know who they are, they know why they exist, and they know whom they serve. Arguably, this is one of the best brands in the world that does this. But do you remember Dove's campaign before Real Beauty? It was that their soap was a quarter cream. For 50 years, this was their brand campaign. Their purpose was clear, and they leaned in. The purpose was to cream your skin while you bathed. And there's nothing wrong with this. This is what the product does. This is the product's purpose. But what they unlocked is this powerful and revolutionary concept that their consumers exist as a whole person outside of their brand, right? When Dove launched Real Beauty, it elevated its brand from a purpose of a moisturizing cream that you would use for five or 10 minutes a day to making women feel beautiful in their skin every minute of every day. Right? Like, let me say this again, because this still blows my mind. You no longer associate Dove with the temporary experience of actually consuming their product. You associate Dove with this de facto thought leader of beauty equality. And the champion and the leader of this very zealous community of women I am a part of that say, you know what? Every age, every race, every sexual orientation, every creed, we need to feel good in the bodies that we have. 
When your brand and your community are aligned around a purpose, your success is their success, and their success is your success, and it becomes this very powerful flywheel. And since I am all about quantifying in this talk, right, numbers, data, it would be remiss not to mention that this campaign doubled Dove's sales in its first 10 years. The soap is the number one selling soap in the world, that moisturizing soap, number one selling soap, and it's also Unilever's best-selling product portfolio-wide. So Duolingo's product is known for our very fun bite-sized lessons that you can learn Spanish in five minutes when you're sitting on the bus. But our true purpose is to make education free and accessible to all. And if you remember the story I told you about Luis growing up in Guatemala, this is firmly rooted in our belief that where you're born and how much money you make should never impact your ability to learn. And over the years, thousands of people have written to us with their stories. Right? People always want to tell me about how language has impacted their lives. And it's one of the first things people tell me when they find out I work for Duolingo. But recently, a story really impacted me. It came from a host in Istanbul who's hosting events in Turkish, which is the native language. And he said, Laura, tonight at my event, I had two people come that were refugees, one from Iraq and one from Syria. And they told me that they had moved to Istanbul to find peace, but they had come to my event to learn the language of their new home. Then he went on to thank me for the opportunity to be a part of a mission that meant so much to him. So the purpose is what inspires Kagri to hold these events week after week. But this is also our purpose that brings us to work every single day. And it's what drives what I do. Community at Duolingo is not just a fuzzy buzzword. It's the mega highway that connects what we do and why we do it and who we do it for. And the reason you're hearing the word community everywhere right now is that executives at the highest level understand that it fuels growth. And it doesn't just fuel growth, it advances authenticity. People interact with brands on a human level. They're seeking out brands that share their ethos, that share their inside jokes, brands that make us feel something in a world that is continuously inundated with data and metrics and numbers. So if you are a community professional or if you have a community team, I encourage you to tell them to embrace this. Community is the intersection of the qualitative and the quantitative, right? It's about the impact it makes, but it is also about the feelings that it evokes. And if you can live comfortably there and add measurable and immeasurable value, that is where you can add the most. So here are your takeaways. Don't be afraid to relinquish control. Understand that true intrinsic why. Don't take yourself too seriously and find your soul. Know who you are and whom you serve. And when you do, you just might be able to activate this cult-like community that makes your head of community title just so mysterious to mother-in-laws around the world. Thank you very much. We have a few uh, moments here to answer some questions. I was actually really interested in understanding when you were getting all these stories, Laura, how did you share that internally? And did you share that externally? Is it something that people can access whenever they are inspired to? This is a great question. The answer is no, unfortunately. When you tell someone you work for Duolingo, because language learning is such a universal experience, everyone has a story. Literally everyone has a story with learning a language. I'm sure you all do. Whether it's the first language you learned or whether it's watching a child learn a language or whether you're learning a language for a job. When I say we're inundated with stories, it is, it is a flood. And I'm sure it happens with anyone that works at Duolingo. We do share internally. And like I said, I think as a community professional, this is my job. 
My job is to constantly remind people who might be working on some sort of technical backend architecture that like, look, this change you're making is actually impacting a human. So we give all hands presentations, we share in Slack channels. And this is something that I think that every brand should do a lot more of. Just curious as well too, do you, of the people that work on your team in Duolingo, how many languages do they know? <laughs> this is a good question. Quite a few, quite a few. We have several polyglots in our internal community, our duo community. I would say a minimum of two, minimum of two languages per person. And with the testing phase that you went through and you said, just, you know, let it go and and things will go wrong. Was there anything that um, you were quite convinced would work, but then didn't and Mm. that you eventually had to draw, but maybe share some of those things that, that didn't work out? One of the biggest struggles is this idea of the blind leading the blind. Everyone wants to come to a language event, but then who's going to lead it and what are they getting out of it? So we tested, we thought this would work really well. We started testing intercambios. We would invite a group of, let's say, Spanish learners who were trying to learn English and then vice versa and get them together. But that didn't prove as exciting as the community that would form around learners trying to stumble through it together. Mm. And that surprised me. When you look at like the swath of events that we have, 600 a week, I was certainly there are some that are exchanges, but most of them are just groups of people and they will source what they need. So some groups are very serious Mm -hmm. and they meet in libraries and they have someone who is a native who comes and they're generally very small. Some groups are, "Eh, we learned Spanish in high school, let's like drink beers and speak in Spanglish. (laughs) And we just allow both of those to happen because everyone's language journey is very different. Is there some form of a uh, rating or success report of these events? Are you, how are you learning which ones are working? This is very important, I think. This is the stage where you need to figure out how to ensure quality at scale. We do something similar to something I've seen here at the gathering. We have a what you can't do, right? You can go anywhere in the sandbox, but there are certain things you can't do. You can't hold an event in your basement, for example, (laughs) off limits, right? You need to be over 18 unless you have a parent. But after every single event, a survey gets sent to every attendee. And then what we've done is hack together a way to just push all of those survey results directly back to the host. So each time they're able to see what they need to improve, because it's one thing for us to see, you know, we want to know which hosts are the best and the worst, but frankly, they're volunteers, right? It's not like we're going to put them on a performance improvement plan (laughs) or something. So we need to make sure that they understand what their group likes and doesn't. That's great. Actually, we have a question from um, our special guest this year, our 11-year-old attendee, just over there in the corner. Um, He'd like to understand what is the most powerful story you heard because of Duolingo? Oh, goodness. I think that Noor's story of learning the language of her new home is one that really stands out to me. But we hear stories every day. We hear stories about people who are taking the Duolingo English test and then able to get into their dream university. We hear about people being able to get jobs or move for someone that they love. So just picking out one would be almost impossible. But there certainly are categories. And the ones that are the most moving to me are the ones that impact our mission the most right? Because there's about 1.2 billion people in the world that are learning a new language. And 800 million of those people are learning English to advance out of poverty. And when we think about learning a language in this room, we're probably thinking about like brushing up on our high school French. We're not thinking about like escaping a really awful situation and not being able to, because the irony is to learn English is what you need to get out of poverty, but it also costs too much money. So those stories are the ones that really impact my heart and keep me going. 
Community models are so important, but certainly not inexpensive. How does Duolingo fund its strategy, especially since learning is largely free? Do many people convert to paid learning once they join your community? Mm, that's a great question. We are at this intersection where we are a free tool, but we also are the highest grossing education app in the App Store. We make money through subscription, and that's the, the largest for us. We also have ads that we serve. And what's interesting around this breakdown is that you know, we don't want to charge people that are learning for this story that I just told you. But frankly, if you use Duolingo every day and you're well off, like, yeah, we think you should subscribe. We think you should do that. And a lot of people do for that exact reason. They do it because they're really passionate about our mission and they want us to keep going. But I do think that our community-driven model is not the, the cost center that people think it is. I think it's actually the growth center. It's why we're able to scale and get more users. It's how we're able to create new courses. It's why we're able to launch Maori and all of these, these new ways to get new users in that can then convert potentially, depending on where they live and how much money they make. That's fantastic. How do you know when you have a minimum viable product? You know, there's not a, again, Malcolm Gladwell, sorry, these are gods to me. There's not a tipping point that you can just target right away. But I do think that you know if you're solving a real problem when you build something janky and it works anyway. I think that is your test. Yeah. If the friction is really high and you're making people jump through hoops and they're still doing it, you're probably not solving for an internal bias. You're probably solving a real problem. And that is when you do have an MVP because it's working. Fantastic. Um, how does Duolingo continue to reinvest in communities and education worldwide? You know, there's a lot of different organizations that we want to invest in. We're also very aware of making sure that we do it quietly in a way that doesn't ever feel like virtue signaling. And so there's outreach groups, like a, there's a border group that we serve. And we provided them with iPads because they're, they're literally a bus on a border with kids that are, you know, getting caught in that mess right now. And they're trying to learn English. And so we'll give them iPads so that they can learn that are equipped with Duolingo or Duolingo Plus so that they're able to use it without internet. In Indonesia, when the really, really bad tsunami hit, same thing, we were able to fund local school groups. But it's not something that we are very public about, and it generally is on a very case-by-case -case basis. Thank you again so much for sharing your story and your journey. Thank you guys Everyone, so much. please. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain -brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast. You know, I think it's an interesting exercise to do as Laura suggested in her speech there and, you know, gather your executive teams or gather your marketing team and ask yourselves, what are we doing as a brand that people could help with? You know, once you identify a few things, determine if you have the policies in place or the people in place or the systems or the tools in place that would allow highly engaged customers or even prospects to want to help you guys out. 
I also think that the scale of what Laura told us about is so dramatic and uh, and even entertaining something along the lines of their type of community event strategy would force your organization to think very differently about how you choose to go to market. I mean, just think about the plumbing and the infrastructure that has to be in place for Duolingo to be able to enable 500 community events per week. Most of you aren't going to do 500 community events in your lifetime. <laughs> you know, few of us are going to be able to replicate what they're doing. But just to consider it, how well your brand could start to master the cult brand principle of congregate and to pull something off that's even a fraction of that would likely result in some meaningful improvement. Uh, you know, fortunately, I think that Laura's speech there gave us just great advice on how to proceed, how to spend our time. I hope that you were paying attention to uh, her advice as well as just that overall theme of her address, which is to tap into intrinsic motivators, how the best community builders appropriately exploit this emotional resonance and tap into human connections. Cult brands learn how to borrow all this goodwill that's associated with our human species desire for connection and then to use it for their own gain. Uh, I hope that you found Laura as delightful as I did. She is so smart, so kind. She is just a genuinely good person and she's making the world a better place. I'm thankful that she participated in the gathering. Once again, this is your host, Chris Neeland, and you've been listening to Cult Brand Secrets where we explore the great speakers and insights shared at The Gathering, a Forbes top-rated business summit. Learn more about The Gathering at cultgathering.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It really helps. Cult Brand Secrets is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Learn more about our podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. Special thanks to Connor Standish and Laura Winter for their assistance in making this podcast possible. Also, I'd like to thank our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, as well as executive producers, David Moss and Bridget Coyne. I'm your host, Chris Nealon. Thanks for listening. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.